Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. This morning we are going to conclude our reflections upon Titus chapter 2. Now you'll notice that this, these verses begin with, with four, this word for, this connecting word for. And Paul here indicates that these verses that we will consider this morning are the ground for the life of virtue that he gave us in verses 1 through 10. So please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, what is grace? This is one of those words that is used so often that we begin to lose sight of its meaning. Think of all the grace phrases that we use as Christians. Grace-based, showing grace, saved by God's grace, the means of grace, or growing in grace. Furthermore, nearly every Christian tradition embraces grace as being central or primary to their conception of the faith. What distinguishes these various traditions is their understanding of the grace of God. In fact, the controversies of the 16th century Protestant Reformation were over how the Western church understands the grace of God. Are we saved by grace alone, or are we saved by our cooperation with the grace of God? That was at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. What then is grace? Is grace an idea? Is it a virtue? Is it something that God does? Is it something that we do? Is it something that's primarily found in the, in the words of Scripture or the bread, wine, and water of the sacrament, sacraments? What is grace? Well, here in these four verses, Paul defines for us the grace of God in, in no uncertain terms. 
And as Paul defines for us the grace of God, he teaches us both what grace is and what grace does. So Paul defines for us the grace of God by teaching us what grace is and what grace does. So in verse 11, Paul teaches us what grace is. You'll notice that Paul begins this passage by saying, For the grace of God has appeared. You ask yourself, well, when did the grace of God appear? At what moment in history did the grace of God appear? Well, this appearance is when God condescended to us sinful man in flesh and blood. This appearance is when God subjected himself to life under the common curse, a curse that he himself enacted because of our sin. This appearance is the greatest event in world history. What then is this appearance? This appearance is the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ as he took upon himself our humanity. This is the appearance that the Apostle Paul is speaking of. Thus, this teaches us that the grace of God is, first of all, objective. It's historical. It stands outside of us. Christ really was born of a virgin. He really did live a perfect life here on earth. He really did die on a Roman cross and rise from the dead on the third day and ascend into heaven. Now, some may reject this grace of God, but if it is indeed objective and historical, one cannot remain indifferent to it. These things are true no matter our experience, no matter our piety, no matter the quality or the strength of our faith. Now, as we think about the grace of God, as Paul defines it here, we may wonder, well, what about the Old Testament saints. If, if God's grace only appeared in the coming or incarnation of Jesus Christ, what about those who lived before the coming of Christ? Did they not taste of the grace of God? Well, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that the Old Testament covenants were themselves covenants of promise. And what he means by that is they were covenants of gracious promises. Furthermore, the New Testament tells us that Abraham and David and Moses were all saved by grace, justified by faith, the same way we are saved, the same way we are justified. And so, yes, the, the Old Testament say, saints did receive the grace of God. However, they received the grace of God as God's grace was mediated through the types or the shadows of the Old Testament system. The sacrifices, the ceremonies, the temple, even the law to a certain extent, as the law reminded the people of God of their sinful nature and drove them to Christ ahead of time. We then can think of these Old Testament types and shadows as being appetizers of grace in preparation for the main course of the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now, what Paul is saying here should give us reason to be somewhat precise in how we use the word grace. So when we speak about growing in grace, what we're really speaking about is growing in conformity to Jesus, 
When we speak about showing someone grace, we're, we're speaking about showing forth the love of Christ and displaying the mindset of Christ, that mindset of humility that we speak about in Philippians chapter 2. When we speak about the means of grace, we're speaking about the instruments that God uses to deliver Christ and all his benefits to us, a sinful people. And so what Paul says here gives us reason to be specific when we use the word grace. Grace is defined in the person of Jesus Christ as he took upon himself our humanity. Now, what did this grace in the person of Jesus Christ do? Well, Paul continues in verse 11. He says that this grace has brought us salvation. So so again, verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, the question that comes to mind here, salvation from what? Our greatest problem in life is not, first of all, horizontal in nature. Our greatest problem is not a social question or economic question or a circumstantial question. Rather, our greatest problem is vertical in nature. Our greatest problem is that we stand under the wrath of God because of our own sin. And thus, when Paul speaks about salvation here, he's not speaking about salvation from horizontal circumstances, but rather he's speaking about salvation from the wrath of God. That same wrath that we plunge ourselves into because of our sin. Now, of course, we as individuals are called in our individual capacity to seek horizontal change in in this world, in our society, in in our lives. However, when it comes, as I've been saying multiple times before in the past weeks, when it comes to the mission of the church as an organization or as an institution, we see throughout Scripture that the mission of the church is, first of all, vertical in nature. Again, Paul is telling Titus here to declare this vertical salvation from the wrath of God because of the grace of God. And this salvation that Paul speaks about here in Titus chapter 2 does not appear in in creation or in nature. You can go on however many hikes that you want to go on, but you'll never find or discover the good news that Jesus died for your sins in the mountains. Paul's very clear here. The grace of God appeared in Jesus Christ and his incarnation. This is what is distinctive about Scripture. Scripture relays the message of grace, a message that is found nowhere in nature, nowhere in creation. One of my professors once said that if the church fails to feed the poor or shelter the homeless or establish hospitals or schools, Someone else in society much more competent than us will fill those voids. However, the church fails to announce this gracious salvation. There's no other earthly institution that is able to fill that gap. That's why Paul is telling Titus here to announce this gracious salvation. And Paul says that this salvation is a salvation for all people, meaning all sorts of people. This is a salvation that's not just for the rich, but for the poor. It's not just for males, but it's for females. It's not just for freedmen, it's for slaves. 
the referent of all people in verse 11 is the same as the us in verse 12, as Paul says that the grace of God is training us. And the us in verse 14, when Paul says that Christ gave himself up for us. Therefore, Paul is saying that the grace of God has come for the same demographics of people that he has alluded to in verses 1 through 10. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women, freedmen, slaves, every sort of person. Salvation is for all people. This demonstrates that we should not be selective in who we announce the gospel to. We are not to try to discern who the elect are or who the reprobate are. We're not privy to that knowledge. We are to treat everyone with whom we come into contact with as someone who is potentially elect. Theologians have old have referred to this idea as the promiscuous or indiscriminate preaching of the gospel. We are to announce that this gracious salvation is for all people. And all people are called to repent of their sins and turn unto Christ. When verse 14, Paul continues to speak about this salvation that's appeared in the coming of Jesus Christ. And he says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Now, this language of redemption is another way in which Paul is describing Christ's salvation. And this word comes from the domain of commerce. In fact, it was used in the first century in connection to the buying and purchasing of slaves. So as this letter would have been written to the church in Crete, this descriptor for what Jesus accomplished for us would have been an especially poignant point for the slaves who were in the church in Crete. Now, what does this mean that we've been redeemed from all lawlessness? Well, by nature, we are all in Adam. We are under the condemnation of the law. We are under the sway of the evil one. We are enslaved to our own fleshly appetites. But thanks be to God, his grace redeems. That is to say, his grace sets us free from this former captivity and causes us to belong to another, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this epistle begins in the first few verses by Paul telling us that he is a servant, or more literally, a slave, a doulos of Jesus Christ. So in Scripture, freedom is not defined as autonomy. Autonomy which allows us to live however we want, to indulge in whatever sinful passion or pleasure that we see uh, fit. Rather, freedom is defined by belonging, or better yet, being slaves to Jesus. Freedom is defined according to the answer of Heidelberg question number one, that we belong body and soul, life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what true freedom is. We're set free from this former captivity to belong to another, body and soul, life and in death. And in this new relationship that we have with Christ, we are given a free and gracious salvation, but we also are given the power to live according to a distinct way of life. God's grace not only saves us, but God's grace also sanctifies us, which is the second element 
that Paul speaks about here in Titus chapter 2. God's grace not only saves, but God's grace also sanctifies us. So you'll notice that Paul speaks about God's grace in a, in a somewhat surprising way. He, he says that God's grace trains us. God's grace trains us. Now notice that Paul does not say that God's grace tells us what we are to do. No, God's grace is what empowers or energizes us to be able to do what the law commands of us. The law is what tells us what to do. The law is what commands us. Grace is what empowers us or energizes us to do what the law commands. Grace is what transforms us to become the type of people that the law calls us to be. The law is not able to give us the power to do what it commands. The law is not able to change us or transform us to be the type of people it calls us to be. The Apostle Paul says this very thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, when he says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. And so we see that God's grace is what empowers, energizes, and changes us to say no to vice and to say yes to virtue. Paul says that God's grace trains us, trains us to put off uh, ungodliness and to live godly and self-controlled lives. Or, to use the language of Paul elsewhere in the New Testament and our catechism, God's grace trains us to put off the old man and to put on the new man. In boys and girls, that's how we define the Christian life and the life of sanctification. God's grace trains us to put off the old man and to put on the new man. And so God's grace not only saves, but it also sanctifies. It changes us. It gives us the power to actually do what the law calls us to do. Now, we don't have time to go into all these vices and virtues that Paul lists here in these verses. However, I do want to point your attention to one particular virtue. Paul says that God's grace energizes us to live self-controlled lives. Now, notice the emphasis that Paul places upon this virtue in Titus chapter 2. Paul has told older men that they are to be men of, of self-control. Paul has told younger women that they are to be self-controlled, which also implies that older women are to be self-controlled because older women are to be mentors to younger women. Paul has told younger men that they are to be self-controlled. In fact, that's the only virtue younger men are to focus upon. Then in Titus chapter 1, Paul said that one of the qualifications to serve as an elder minister within the church of Jesus Christ is to be self-controlled. Thus, as Paul thinks about what it means to be a godly and mature Christian, he thinks of this virtue, to be able to control our passions, our emotions, our words, to be able to to lead an even-keeled life. Uh, during the many ups and downs that this life brings. We are to be a people who are self-controlled. Every person in the church is called to live according to this virtue. Now you'll notice that, that Paul continues, and he says that God's grace also trains us to have a pilgrim mindset. And this is what Paul says in verse 13. 
He says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so there are two great appearings of our Lord Jesus Christ, his first coming and his second coming. And when Paul speaks here about waiting, it's code for you are a pilgrim people. You live in between these two great appearances. You have one foot in this age and you have one foot in the age, of, age to come and thus you are to live as a sojourner, as a pilgrim. In the tension between these two ages, between these two advents, this is where we find ourselves as the people of God. Now when we look to the Old Testament for an example or template for how we are to live as New Covenant Christians, we should not look to Israel in the Holy Land. Rather, we should look to Abraham the sojourner, Abraham the pilgrim, and to Israel in exile in Babylon. This is exactly what the Apostle Peter tells us to do in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, again, think Abraham, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, think of Israel and Babylon, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When Peter speaks to first century Christians living in a pagan world, he says that you should live as a pilgrim people. You should live as a sojourner and an exile as you rub shoulders with the ungodly Gentiles, those who hold radically different beliefs and convictions than, than, than they do or we do. We are to be a pilgrim people. Our citizenship is in heaven and our ultimate identity resides in the age to come, the new creation. Although we find ourselves travailing this present evil age. We are a pilgrim people. Now, there are two main ditches that we need to be clear to avoid as we travail this path as a pilgrim people. So think, think of a pilgrim walking down a path, and there are two ditches on each, each side of this path, and it's very easy to slide down into one of these two ditches as we seek to live in the tension uh, between these two advents of Christ. And the one ditch that we need to be uh, wary of is thinking of ourselves as permanent residents of this age. Thinking that our ultimate home is in Babylon. Thinking that this world is all there is. Thinking that we should just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now one diagnostic test to see whether or not we have, we're beginning to slide into this ditch is if the joys of this world are ultimate to us, and the blows of this life become debilitating. When pilgrims experience the joys of this life, they experience those joys as, as merely a foretaste, a mirage of the joy that is waiting for us on the other side of this veil of tears. When a pilgrim experiences the blows of this life, they realize that that though these things are difficult, they are able to grieve with hope, knowing that the most important thing about them cannot be taken away. Well, as we embrace our identity as pilgrims, there's yet another ditch that we need to be aware of. And this ditch is really the, the opposite direction. This is when we begin to think 
that we are closer to our heavenly homeland than we actually are. It's when we begin to think that or assume that uh, uh, too much of the new creation in this present, this present age. In theological terms, this is sometimes referred to as having an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology refers to when Jesus returns, uh, the new creation. We begin to assume too much of the new creation in this age. We begin to think that Babylon has become the new Jerusalem. Now, there are three main movements that have fallen into this ditch that I think it's, it's helpful for us to be aware of. Uh, the first example is the movement that's sometimes referred to as perfectionism. Though adherents of, of this movement claim that we as Christians who have the Holy Spirit, who live after the time of Pentecost, we, we should believe that perfection is actually possible for us in this life. And if not perfection, well then something very, very close to perfection. But we have to remember what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 7, what our catechism says, reflecting upon the Apostle Paul's words, Apostle Paul's words in Romans 7, that even the holiest of men have only a small beginning of true and perfect obedience. And we're a pilgrim people. That sanctification is going to be difficult, and we're only going to make a small beginning of, of true, perfect conformity to the law of God. Now, the second main example or movement that at least in, in our opinion, as a Reformed church has fallen into this ditch, uh, would be uh, the Anabaptist understanding of a believer-only baptism. And again, this is from our perspective as a Reformed confessional church. You know, Jesus says in the Gospels that in the new creation, the consummation of the new creation, the natural family and marriage will no longer persist. He says that people will no longer be married nor given in marriage that we will relate to everyone as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Christ will be our elder brother and God will be our father. However, we live in the inauguration of the new creation. We live in this pilgrim age. And so some have taken passages like this and other passages and have, have asserted that God no longer has redemptive or holy purposes for the natural family in this present age. However, Paul seems to suggest the very opposite in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says that children are holy. That is to say, set apart or distinct because of the faith of their parents. Now, what separates a covenant child from a pagan child? Well, the covenant child has the privilege, the blessing of being raised in a Christian home, of being raised in a covenant community of faith, and thus that covenant child has the immense privilege of hearing the word of God the word that the Spirit uses to create and sustain faith. And that is something that a pagan child ordinarily does not have the blessing of receiving. Well, the third main movement that we need to be wary of is uh, what I refer to as a flight or fight attitude toward the world. Fight in the sense of thinking that we as Christians are going to take over the world and culture, or flight, meaning that we are to retreat from this world, retreat from culture into our own little Christian enclaves. And Paul here addresses specifically the flight attitude at the end of verse 12, when he says that God's grace trains us to live godly lives in this present age. God's grace is training us in this present evil age. 
As one commentator says, God's grace does not simply prepare us for the age to come, but also saves us for the present and teaches us how to live now. This means that we are to be, yes, a pilgrim people, but a pilgrim people who are engaged in this world, this society, and this culture. We are to be like Israel in Babylon, as Jeremiah says, that they are to uh, build homes, get married, plant trees, and seek the welfare of the city, but never to forget that their true home is still in Jerusalem. And so Paul is saying that God's grace trains us to be a people who wait, to be a pilgrim people. And we are to be careful that we stay on the path, that we don't begin to think that Babylon is our ultimate home, and we also don't begin to think that Babylon is in New Jerusalem. We are a people who wait. We are a people who are pilgrims. Well, Paul lastly continues in verse 14 as he says that God's grace sanctifies us by making us zealous for good works. God's grace makes us zealous for good works. Uh, Paul is really saying here that we, because of the grace of God, are be zealots for good works. The word here that Paul uses is used in other pieces of literature to refer to political zealots, ultra-nationalists. So this is the image that Paul has in mind as he speaks to how we should relate to good works. Now this might strike us as odd because in our experience, uh, it's very difficult to do good works. In fact, oftentimes living a life of good works feels like we're cutting against the grain of our nature. So how do we become zealous for good works? Well, again, we need to understand and realize again the, the relationship that Paul is positing between justification and sanctification here. We are justified first, we're saved first, we're redeemed first, and thus as a result, we are sanctified. And so Paul is saying that it's only when we have the gospel, the grace of God pulsing through our veins that we'll be motivated, empowered, energized, zealous even, to live a life of good works. Ordinarily, we're tempted with the desires of the flesh in those moments when we feel insecure, those moments when we don't quite feel whole, when we feel as if we're searching for an identity, when we feel as if we have no hope, uh, we're not satisfied. And sin promises to deliver in all these various categories, but sin in reality never delivers in what it promises. And in those moments of temptation, we, we don't ultimately need to hear the law. We need to hear the gospel. We need to hear that we have died and our life is now hidden in Christ. It's the gospel and only the gospel that makes us whole. It's only the gospel that gives us that new identity, that we belong to Jesus Christ. It's only the gospel that gives us a hope. It's only the gospel that gives us a place to go with the guilt of our sin and conscience. And thus it's the gospel that gives us this true freedom and empowerment to go against the desires of our flesh and to live uh, virtuous lives of good works. And thus, Paul is saying here that God's grace saves and sanctifies. We don't save ourselves and we don't sanctify ourselves. We also don't save others and we also don't sanctify others. That's very important to realize in your relationship with other people. You have no power to save them and you have no power ultimately to sanctify them. We all are completely dependent upon the grace of God for both salvation and sanctification. In conclusion, you'll notice that Paul finishes this chapter in verse 15 by saying, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The grammar behind these imperatives implies that these are ongoing duties that Titus is to perform. He is to declare, exhort, rebuke continually. He is to never cease from proclaiming the grace of God. 
This tells us that Christians are just as much in need of the grace of God as non-Christians. Christians are just in, as much in need of the grace of God as non-Christians. And this makes complete sense when we realize that it's only God's grace that empowers us, energizes us, and transforms us to be the type of people that the law calls us to be. And so if we are going to proclaim the law, that we, we better also proclaim the good news of the grace of God. And so let us in this moment thank God that he has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ and granted us this good news of the grace of God.